A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Mahmoud Yassin, a lead data architect at ABN AMRO. Some key takeaways or thoughts from Mahmoud's point of view. It's very difficult to do fully decentralized MDM or master data management, which led to some duplication of effort. That can mean increased cost and people not using the best data. ABN tackled this through their data integration access layer, or DIAL, uh, which is similar to a service bus concept. Number two, they are using that centralized layer, again called DIAL, to help teams manage integrations that are both consistently running and on the fly. It helps monitor for duplication of work instead of reuse. Number three, if Mahmoud could do it again, he'd focus on enabling data integration earlier in their journey to encourage more data consumption. Cross-domain and cross-data product consumption is highly valuable, but right now it's just not happening at the level that they would have hoped. Number four, the industry really needs to develop more and better standards to enable easy data integration. It's just not out there right now. We need people to really focus on this if we're going to get data mesh right. Number five, data mesh and similar decentralized data approaches cannot fully decentralize everything. Look for places to centralize offering in a platform or platform-like approach that can be leveraged by the decentralized teams. 
think this is something that a lot of people mistake when thinking about data mesh. You don't decentralize everything. Number six, most current data technology licensing models aren't well designed for or suited to doing decentralized data. It's easy to pay a lot if you aren't careful, or even if you are careful. So really keep an eye on that. Don't do things for the sake of doing them. Really think about when you're, especially when people think about kind of, should I do this in streaming or can I do it in batch? Can I do this in a, um, do I have to do this in a super, super performant matter? Or can I (laughs) kind of fudge a little bit on performance? Number seven, a tough but necessary mentality shift is not thinking about being quote unquote done once data is delivered. That's data projects. That's not data as a product. That's not that data product thinking. Number eight, try to keep as much work as possible within the domain boundary when doing data work. Of course, cross-domain communication is key, but try to limit the actual work dependency on other domains if possible. Jesse Anderson talked about there's a 12x um, time increase when you are doing cross-domain work. If it's just within the team, you know, it's one twelfth of the amount of time and effort to actually move forward per his research. Number nine, a data marketplace enables organizations to more easily create a standardized experience across data products and make data discovery much easier. You don't necessarily have to tie your cost allocation models to the marketplace concept. You don't have to think about it with like this real monetization bent. You can use a marketplace to create an experience and you know that's that's totally okay. You don't have to really really tie in the economics. Number 10, sharing what analytical queries or data integration recipes people are using has been important for ABM. It drives insights across boundaries and also creates a lower bar to interesting tangential insight creation and development, right? If you've got a recipe that's available for somebody created this this recipe because um, combining these data from these four different domains really comes up with something that's really interesting, somebody can easily take that and augment it for their own practices. Number 11, you should consider not allowing integrations across multiple data products by default. Producers should be able to stop integrations for compliance purposes, but also because the integration might not actually provide good or valuable or correct insights. The producing domain, this is again per Mahmoud's view, should be able to say, no, you you shouldn't do that integration. Let's like actually talk about it. Number 12, and finally, Traditional ETL development is about translating the business needs to code, but centralized IT usually can't deeply understand the the business context and needs, so they deliver substandard solutions. If you consider that business needs evolve, it gets even worse. I think a lot of people that are looking at data mesh understand this. This is one of the big pain points, but it's good to reiterate these things from time to time. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Mahmoud Yassin here, who's the lead data architect at ABN AMRO. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Um, if you're not familiar, um, ABN AMRO has been on a data mesh journey before the concept of data mesh was really even out there. Their journey has looked a lot like what Jamak has talked about. Pete Hines Strangholt, who was formerly at ABN AMRO, uh, did a book kind of about what they were looking to do called um, Data Management at Scale, I believe is what it's called. And so... Um, it's just a lot of interesting things, a lot of learnings about what they've seen that works and what doesn't work over the last three to four years. And so I think it's really going to be helpful for uh, people to see somebody who's kind of far down this journey and what they've learned and what are some of the anti-patterns as well so that we can help people avoid those. So Mahmoud, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the topics at hand. Yeah, thanks a lot, Scott, uh, for having me in uh, Data Mesh Radio. I'm really happy uh, to be here with you. And uh, my name is uh, Mahmoud, as you said it uh, correctly. Uh, I work for ABN AMRO, indeed. It's a bank in the Netherlands. And um, um, I started my career as a, as a data uh, ETL developer, let's say, dealing with uh, millions of records. And uh, so I've seen, let's say, the, uh, the bane of uh, doing data transformations in a classical let's say, data warehouses, and then, uh, yeah, also during time, uh, move between businesses and stuff, so also have the chance to do data lake architecture myself as well. So I've seen how this works and the benefits uh, of it and also the drawbacks. And then all the way till I've decided to to uh, to come to Europe and, uh, and then, um, yeah, really the concept of data mesh, or as you said, even before it's being called data mesh at Avon Amro, we've been thinking in how can we uh, upgrade our data architecture in a way. So we didn't call it mesh at that end, but uh, we called it the, the dial uh, project, digital integration and access layer, which I'm sure that we will touch uh, during the, uh, the recording. And I've been, uh, I've been with Avon Amro for almost five years trying to uh, help a company build that new architecture. And as you said, we're quite let's say not uh, not there yet, but at least we are not starting from zero. So uh, the project has started already, I think 2018. So almost uh, four years now. So I'm excited to share the bronze and the pain points, as you said, because it's about sharing knowledge. I'm quite happy and excited to, to do the talk with you today. Awesome. And, and there's a lot of different places that we could jump into this, but I think what you talked about a little bit is a good um, transition in of, what what were you seeing that had been the issues with the data warehouse and the data lake and how the concept of data mesh is trying to address those? And then we can talk about kind of the realities of, yeah. you know, yeah. it's not that, hey, these things uh, were an issue. And so now data mesh solves all of the challenges yeah. and you don't have any more challenges, right? It's it's yeah. It's all just perfect, right? No. So like, would love to hear what you saw as, as kind of those issues, especially as we hit towards more and more scale yeah. and how you, you are looking for data mesh to address those. Yeah. So I, I, as you said, uh, so I always say there's no perfect uh, data architecture. Uh, so it's not also like um, take it or leave it uh, kind of concept. So uh, if you are not the data warehouse, then you should be a mesh or a data lake. And I always say you should choose what fits your company and also it's okay to mix and match. So there are certain 
aspects, definitely that the data or the classic data warehouse is good at. Same for lake, same for mesh, same from whatever will come next. And this is just a matter of choosing the best architecture, even custom architecture that fits your organization. Uh, but the, back to your question, yeah. So when I started as an ETL developer, I was in the IT department, of course. And then um, the main struggle was how to translate the business needs into code and then uh, get feedback on it and then get it to action or to take a decision. And of course, this is uh, not super easy if you have like an IT person trying to understand the business of uh, what's going on. So, so often we go to a meetings with the finance, with risk, with many departments. Okay, they try to give us, or let's say, um, yeah, spoon feed us, let's say the business. So try to put us in their shoe. And that's quite, quite hard to be honest, right? Because let's say your background, your experience, and the stuff that they're looking at, is not the same angle that you are looking from it from an IT perspective. And that always led to, let's say, that you don't get the idea in the first time, second time. Maybe if you're into the topic and you've done some R&D and stuff, you started to, to make sense. And I remember a very complex project about billing in, in, uh, in telecommunication. And then I was trying to understand how the billing system works and in order to create an ETL job that does, let's say, evaluation of the customer uh, usage versus their uh, plan uh, uh, rate plan of uh, of let's say of the of their mobile subscription, and that was horrible. So I had to understand finance and how billing works and and bunch of other things that that was super complex, and and for me that's one of the let's say disadvantages of putting everything in that central IT team to manage business uh, processes and business demand. And at a certain point of time, this is really not scalable because data mesh, I think, is all about scalability. If you have a small business, maybe the classic data house is actually more than perfect for you. But if you really want to scale that into really, really the, the, the speed of data that you are getting, and if you are a big organization that deals with millions and billions of records and terabytes, etc., then that one, that team will become the bottleneck for sure. There's no doubt about that because they have a limited capacity. No, it's not also about putting people and scaling it up. It's a little bit on the mentality and the ownership. And that also is the same actually in the data lake. It's data lake is just deals with the way we interact with the data differently, but the same problem exists. And that's why I really like that, that concept of data mesh where the domain gets the ownership of uh, what they own, both, let's say, online transaction processing systems and also analytical processing, because it's sort of a game changer. You push the game towards the people who understand, and it is their responsibility to make their own even IT teams, if they have such a setup, understand that they live together, they work together, they are daily in, in the standards together. So it is much easier than you know dealing with a completely different team, a centralized team sitting in an IT somewhere and trying to do, let's say, the same idea. So that part I really like about data mesh. And I really find this concept or principle is very fascinating. And if you manage to do it, it's, it's going to help a lot the organization. Yeah. And uh, a couple of things. One, I mean, you and I both know this, right? Like I, it's coming through, but um, I always want to be somewhat clear with people about it's not that the data warehouse or the data lake technologies are the issue. It's that no. the way that, that we've used them in that centralized approach, yeah. right? A lot of a lot of data mesh, by the way, is, is in my opinion, and the way I intercepted is a mentality shift. 
right? Yes. Rather than anything else, because concept like, okay, the data as a product, that's a mentality shift. Uh, the domain ownership, that's a mentality shift, shift that people need to kind of grasp and understand in order to really feel that this product that I have, this piece of data is truly a product that I want to aim to own and I want to guard and I want to be, let's say, sexy and people like to buy it, right? And then that's that's a game changer in, in the classical ways of thinking, you know, that's indeed my system. I get data out of it for analytics. I throw it away to, let's say, the data warehouse, data lake. Good luck. I've done my job. If there is a comment, a feedback, a review, it has to go to a system, to a team, to a team. Then it comes to me that, okay, I've delivered the data. That's not my problem anymore. And that is a really mentality shift. And, and, and that's what also I like about, about those two, two, two principles in the data mesh. And the other aspect that I thought was interesting is something that's come up more and more was when you said, you know, the second or the third try uh, and that you still didn't always get the context and you still didn't always get it right. This is something that I'm seeing. um, I think it was Bjorn Medman in his episode talked about um, that's a signal that you've got an issue of what it's not that you have the if the centralized team is meeting with uh, another team once and they're able to have that exchange of context and it works relatively well the signal that, that your centralization isn't working very well is those second plus meetings right for yeah. the same project right it's it's that okay especially if it's post delivery of something if it's post delivery and then it's that meeting of, okay, let's try this again. Let's start from scratch versus let's iterate on it. Like that's positive. That's positive change versus, hey, we didn't get what we wanted. And and that, that's that's a, a good, interesting signal. Um, yeah. And I, I liked what you said as well of that kind of handoff of, I did my job. I delivered the data. I'm moving on to the next thing. Oh, you yeah. want to change to this? put it back into my Jira queue or my whatever, my backlog. And so it's going to be another three months before I get to it because I've got all of my backlog filled up versus that like, hey, we're going to do fast iteration together and, and handing off between teams and teams. Yeah. Jesse Jesse Anderson, in his episode mentioned that um, it's twelve. it takes 12x more time if you have to work outside of your team. If you have to go outside of your team, it that that one piece takes twelve x more amount of time and work. I, I fully agree. I, I, in a big organization, you have even those teams are from different, let's say, departments. And if you want to even touch the team or a product team, then you have to go through a PI planning and maybe a three months, uh, let's say, already planned thing. So you have to wait for the next queue. And it can be logistically a little bit, you know, uh, too difficult even to change just one column. And that happens, like, I fully agree. That happens also in, I think, most of the companies uh, as well. So it's really crossing that boundary is, is kind of a scary uh, sometimes. So if, if you manage to contain, let's say, the, the development, uh, let's say, to a certain aspect, I would say, because you cannot get rid of the cross-domain, that's also, I think, will touch that part uh, in a way because that's a way to scale up. But at least if you can contain the changes and the, and the feedbacks and, you know, offering your data or your product in a different shape and form within your own domain that really uh, can be managed from a central backlog, from a even, you know, one team or two teams, whatever, but then it will be much easier. The cycle will be easier and priorities can be called very easily. 
Yeah, and that's the, I think Pete Hine in one of his uh, articles, or maybe it was in a conversation I had with him said, you know, you, you try to localize the work, but you don't localize the, commu- the communication. So you still have that cross boundary work or that cross boundary, cross domain communication, but it's not that the, there's much cross boundary work if, if you can avoid it, because it's like, okay, what what do I have to do within my own domain to work with this? And sometimes there's collaboration needed, but a lot of times it's like, if you're really clear with what you're doing, it can be combined into another data product or whatever relatively easily because you've set what you're going to create and that you're not saying, okay, we're going to do a cross domain collaboration on this data product is we're going to serve what needs to get served and we're going to create it as a product and, and, and move forward. So I think that mentality shift that you were talking about is so crucial to, to get away from that. Like, okay, we're going to have this big, big um, cross domain project versus like, let's break it down into chunks where we don't have to be reliant, where we're loosely coupled in even the work that we're doing to create these loosely coupled data products. <laughs> Yeah, I fully agree. And I also thought of uh, maybe an easier example also that I will use through my uh, my session with you, my recording is actually, if you look a little bit on, on Amazon, right? So, and how they, they sell products or how they facilitate, let's say, selling product. This example really resonates with me when it comes to data mesh, because you have, let's say, a producer, you know, of a product and you have a consumer of a product and the role of Amazon, I think we will touch upon it in the next uh, questions is really crucial and can be very much, you know, mapped to data mesh. So for example, if you have a, a phone or if you're a phone manufacturer, let's say Apple or something, and you want to, to offer your product to be sold in, in Amazon, if there's a bad review, who, who picks this up? It's not Amazon, right? So it goes directly. Amazon facilitates like, you know, the communication, but then the one who gets on their feet will be a producer because they want to have the best product ever and then they want to know why this is angry and then they start reach out to the consumer and then have the next version or update it or do something or co- even compensate the consumer at a certain point of time and that kind of analogy really makes it easier for me when i want ever to explain data mesh because if you have such a thing instead of course the product the physical product you're talking about data similarly you can you can see it or you can maybe it quite a little bit you know, easier, uh, in my opinion. And I'm going to build up on this story, I think, in our talk. Uh, Yeah, and and I think that product management learnings from outside of software, because most people are like, (laughs) oh, I should do data as a product. I'm going to just go to software product management. And I think that physical goods product management is really a useful analogy to think about because there are so many additional aspects and, and that it's not like, software product management, there are some really good things to take from that. But it's also like, what is my actual demand? What What is my, like, how do I do internal data product marketing? How do I actually kind of test the market for what, what do people actually want? I'm thinking about creating this. Is there demand or do I only wait for people to come to me and say, I want this? No, you want, you want to be out there and kind of being innovative and having those conversations. So I I, I like, I like pretty much everything you're saying. Um, So you, you had talked about a, a little bit about this and I'd love to weave in kind of the 
journey and what went well, what you do differently, what's still really hard and all that. But let's start with kind of, we talked a little bit about that centralization, decentralization, right? Centralization is a benefit until it's not a benefit, right? If you're a small company, centralization is the cost of decentralization is far too high. But like, as you're going along, there's so many different things that you you need to figure out how decentralized or how centralized it is. Um, if you could give a couple of examples as to what you've looked at, and maybe even if there's a couple of different domains where the centralization or decentralization is a, at a different level, that's totally fine, right? Versus if if somebody really doesn't know GDPR, if they don't have anybody who really understands it in their domain, that that can be a little bit lever- higher leveraged on the centralized team. So would love just kind of how you've seen that evolve. And, and again, what, what's worked well, what you tried, where you tried to go fully decentralized. And it was like, no, that was a bad idea. Like all that. Yeah. So of course, centralization, decentralization is one of the main, uh, always, uh, yeah, uh, nice, interesting points to discuss when it comes to data mesh, because yeah, I think the theory, uh, let's say, as it stands, is goes for full decentralization. And of course, for not for everything, because the governance layer, you need to have, let's say, solid and cross all the domains. So that one is uh, is clear. But, but also when we thought a little bit of a fully decentralization, we kind of, you know, thought of benefits also of centralization to a certain extent. So, you know, what's kind of, neglected in data mesh is the amount of of effort that you want to do if you go with a full decentralization when it comes, for example, to master data management. So if you want to build this golden record of your customer, the customer 360 record that always, you know, ensures that you know what 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 the customer is about and where he lives, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, that if you think and how can I do that in a full decentralization mode, that will be so, so complex and hectic. And that will lead to a lot of data duplication and, and maybe even more challenging times to, to manage all this data. So clearly, let's say the balance between centralization and decentralization, you need to kind of kind of find that balance. Uh, and, and for us at ABN Amro, I think what we've decided for, which is maybe it's not really like a data warehouse or a data lake, but then we have invented like a service bus let's say a layer that we call the dial layer between the provider and a consumer. That is not a data warehouse, not a lake. So it's just a facilitator, let's say between the two. But then what you do if you put your data in in this layer is that you ensure certain aspects to your data by default. So by default, the data gets checked. By default, the data quality gets applied to it. By default, the business metadata is gathered, the technical metadata is gathered, lineage information is gathered, and then everyone can benefit from that transparency that you have created with that layer in the middle. And to make it also back to the example and analogy of Amazon, so if you want to sell the product in Amazon, you have also two options, one which can map to the full decentralization. So the order comes in, you go to a manufacturer and say, okay, dispatch that order to Scott, and then you know you deal with him, uh, uh, let's say, with the manufacturer directly. And then each manufacturer, if you can imagine, has a different SLA, different logistics challenges, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the end-to-end customer journey will not be as smooth as 
For example, what Amazon have a concept which is called if, uh, fulfillment by Amazon, FBA. So in the FBA concept, they have big warehouses, right? In every country, whatever, uh, scattered. And then you as a provider give your product or deliver it as a bulk to that fulfillment center. And the moment this product physically enters the fulfillment center, tons of insurity is being done to the product. It's being getting checked. It's getting uh, the quality aspect is being done. It gets verified. It's not a fraud. The product exists because sometimes you just order something from there or from people and then you get empty stuff and so on and so forth. And then metadata gets collected by default and a bunch of other standards will be, will be applied. Logistically will be stored in an optimized way, packaged in a, let's say, eco-friendly. So many, many things for the physical product just by ensuring it goes to the fulfillment center. And then at the end of the chain, when a consumer requests a product or actually multiple products, they are in the performance center. So they can easily package this in, let's say, and wrap it in a wrapper and deliver that to you through their known SLA, known logistics, their own standards, which then you get that insurance that the data will get delivered in time with quality, let's say, in a standard format, in, in you know, an interoperable format, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what we have tried to do with the dial architecture. It's like, you know, um, a distribution layer where you give your data, we take your data, we apply a lot of things to it before we make it consumption ready or available for a consumer. But once it is consumption ready, it gets a stamp from us that it is fit for purpose and can be used across, let's say, the organization. So that is, let's say, one of the main learnings and that, that implementation is done centrally. Right. So let's say that ecosystem around, let's say, the dial project is actually managed centrally, as I call it, but then used decentrally. And that's the main beauty or the main trick here that you don't create in data mesh, let's say, services that the IT people are using. It is being built by IT, but used by business slash domain as much as possible. And for that, in order to manage that complexity, we came up with the idea of the data marketplace, which is exactly Amazon.com, right? It's a website. You hop on to it. You can search. There's a catalog feature, search and find the data set till you translate it. Okay, this is what I want. When you click on it, it opens a whole page of description of the data, description of metadata, ownership information in which domain, stewardship information, description of it, how many times this data has been used as a sort of, a, let's say, incentive for people to know how much they can trust this data. You see a data quality of the data set. You see the data issues, if it has data issue, if it has data gaps, all of this is in a very transparent way, right? So our goal is to let the consumer figure out the best product ever that fits his needs or her needs. And then you can also see a preview feature of the product. So seeing is believing. So let me show you what I have also before you can buy it. If, if that's possible, that would be cool, right? If you go to a showroom and then you can see the product itself, but in this case it's data, so you cannot touch it, but then you can see it in a viewer. Then we do that as well. And then you get a bunch of information and also feedbacks and ratings, et cetera, et cetera. So we've created all of that, but we don't use it. So everything is done in a self-service way where the domain hop into the portal, they have different accesses where they can create that, okay, I have the product and I want a landing zone where I need to put my data. Okay, fine. 
bunch of automation, automation will happen in the background, but you will get a, a path where you can put your data in whatever batch you can do, let's say whatever uh, format and also whatever uh, standard you want to apply. And then, okay, but this data is just data. You cannot move to a next step without, for example, providing the business metadata of what you're offering. Okay, this is my product, this is a description of it. It consolidates from these kind of elements. Each element has a definition and the definition is registered, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you build up that product thinking, but the key point here is who is building that? Not us, not the IT people, it's being done by the domain. And then, you know, a bunch of workflows, a bunch of approvals, et cetera, et cetera, also to ensure certain quality and certain, let's say, transparency. But at the end, once the product is published in the data marketplace and ready to be consumed, you know that this product is ticking all the gates of being qualified to be used within the organization. And then another journey can start, which is the consumption journey. So that, that part is really going very well at our end. And, and I've got like 60 different ways that we go off of that. But I think one thing that you mentioned was the centralized governance layer. Um, and I think another thing that a lot of people have missed, because I, I don't think it was as much covered in the initial articles, but the centralized experience layer, which is that if you were to have, say, um, you know, let's even just say relatively early days, you know, you're, you're year and a half in, two years in, not four years in like you guys are, but then you've got 75, 100, maybe even 150 data products. You know, there are some uh, companies that are getting to, yeah, within 12 hours of a request, we have like an initial V0.0.1 of a data product out the door and that you can start to iterate with your your potential consumer. But um, that that centralized experience is so crucial because if every data product has its own user experience, it's it, it's like learning a new piece of software for every single one, and then you're trying to to like combine data from across them, and so you're having to do it's it's that thing of okay, I'm pulling data from this person's spreadsheet, and they you know, even just doing this person does columns and this person does rows for how they store their day. And this person does dates in UTC and this person does it in their, their personal time zone. And just like even little obnoxious things like that, that it can take hours to clean that data versus like even that's just, it's in an, an Excel spreadsheet. Now, if you start to think about software and learning, okay, I have to learn Power BI and Tableau and Looker and, you know, whatever else. I could stretch you for also. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, I really agree with you because also just, just imagine how Amazon would be if you need to deal with each product portal or experience separately, right? And instead of having a shopping cart where I want this phone and I want this cover and I want this screen protector and then order then you get the package, you know, as, as one package. And of course, with data, you can strive for more. Let's say if you want this data to be integrated, how cool would be if certain integrations are being done as part of this centralized layer to avoid duplicating that in every, every single domain? Because, for example, this is a crown jewel integration. So everyone wants the customer 360 data set, which comes from 10 different sources. 
And if you want to do that your own, then you need to copy the data from the 10 different sources to your domain and then try to do or apply the transformation and then get the data out. And then you need to replicate this in, let's say, five domains and you can imagine what will happen. So translation can be, can be done wrongly. Also, amount of duplication, which means not just cost, but also governance, GDPR, and a bunch of other things. But if you push that to that central layer, then you can get, you can ensure that the data for certain aspects, we are not saying that we are going to do a classic data warehouse or data or data lake where all the transformation has to fit a model and then we do it there. No, we have invented, let's say, a concept that we call integrated data set. So as long as the integration doesn't change the value of the data, then that's fine. We can do that in this centralized layer. If you really want to do a custom integration that's really and purely related to your domain, that can be pushed there because maybe that's something that you want to do for a specific report, for a specific regulator, that's fine. But for the common, let's say, integrations that, let's say, will cover maybe 60 or 70% of what people are looking for, how cool would it, would it be if this can be generalized and then done in a central place? And that centralization can also be virtual, right? So let's not underestimate the power of virtualization here. So it doesn't have to be physically kind of you know integrated. It can be also logically or let's say on the fly integration for certain aspects. And of course, for certain cases, if you want to cash this in, then we have came with also a concept where you can physically store that integration. We call it the um, data X store uh, in our architecture. And then that can be for performance reasons can be reused. So centralization is not a bad thing. As you said, I really like your statement unless it fails to, let's say, give the purpose. And we, we have the lesson that we've learned that if you centralize this layer, you are in much, much more control than replicating this centralized layer in every domain. And to be honest, also there you will pay a lot. And also the tools are not designed for that. And that's maybe a very important aspect that the technologies that we have now around data, they have been built, the architecture of it has been built for quite some years now based on the concept of data, classic data warehouse. Like, okay, I have uh, this big machine that's in the data center centrally, and then I put everything on it and then figure out what to do with it. And that is really, yeah, it will take, in my opinion, quite some years for the tools and technologies also to mature to, for example, being, let's say, centrally managed, but then decentralizing, decentrally used, right? That is how maybe I've seen some tools now doing that. So for example, Purview, Microsoft Purview is heading into that direction. So it is a central tool that can be implemented on the tenant level, organization level, but you can use it decentrally by each product or domain separately, but still, you know, you have that control plane layer, let's say to administrate, to ensure certain quality, certain standard, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think also technology need to, we need to give it some time also to digest the concept of mesh. And then maybe at a certain point of time, we can be fully decentralization. I don't know. But for now, if you try to do that, first of all, you pay a lot of money yeah. because licensing and, you know, is not done to be decentralized and also duplication of the data, the complexity of the data that you need to deal with. So maybe till the technology catch up with, that, with, the, with the theory, then, um, yeah. Our advice is to, let's say, do the data um, exchange 
maybe in a central uh, uh, layer, but then, as I said, develop it centrally, but try to make it used decentrally. And self-service is a great, let's say, keyword here that if you manage to create that, to let the domain uh, teams manage their own product, let's say like what Amazon does with their product in the portal, that is pure beauty, in my opinion. You you made a bunch of different really good points in there that I want to <laughs> talk to, but one was that centralized integration layer, I think is, is an important concept or, um, you know, one of the first uh, interviews I did was with Juan is Rosiers and he was at uh, DPG Media. And what they did was instead of having that centralized integration layer um, in, in most aspects, what they did was actually swim upstream, push upstream. And what that meant was that if you were a downstream consumer, it's, I think it's a lot more difficult with a company at your size and your complexity level. But anybody that was downstream consuming information from a domain, that information was pushed up to that domain. And there was kind of a, everyone should understand how your data is being consumed downstream. That doesn't mean that you have to make changes, but it may be that kind of that central integration layer that you're talking about. It's the same concept of, well, if we've got five different people that are using this information that's been transformed in this way, we should just push that into the the initial data product. Now, if you do have that customer 360 view, that's not really possible because there are, like you said, 10 different domains that are publishing into it. So you can't have each one of those domains own the other nine pieces from other domains and things. But you should think about pushing that up so that way at least they know that this transformation is happening and then they can make a conscious decision. Oh, I've seen four different people that are transforming it in this way and they're all doing it slightly differently. And I think the correct way to do it is, you know, this, this first way. So I'm going to have that discussion with everybody and say, Hey, here's why we think you should use this. And, and you have a higher quality source because we're doing it live and that you're not having any delay and that you're not having that repeat of that master data management is somewhat about the, you know, we want to make sure that we understand that this is the right information, but it's also that duplication of what you said of like not doing the same work or essentially the same work where it's like, okay, somebody is transforming these four columns and somebody else is transforming column one, two, three, and five and, and transforming a new column of five. But those one, two, three are looking exactly the same. So like, let's just push that upstream if we can. I, I think that's... Yeah. I really like also the example that you gave because we we also at the beginning we thought of making this as a hard let's say thing so you know the customer 360 can mean something different between you and me right so this also evolved a little bit in our thinking and we came up with okay this cannot be like one size fits all right so what we are going to do in the next phase is that we are going to create an integration recipe of how this integrated data has been built, also transparently, right? So you will go to the data marketplace, you will see that piece of integration that has been done by Scott for this particular use case, and then this is the recipe of how this has been done. Now you want to look into this, then you can see, okay, okay, he's done this, he joined, he used this key, 
and then he filtered on that and then he eliminated certain aspects. And then you have an option, couple of options, okay? Maybe it is exactly what I'm looking for and don't underestimate that as well. Then you can say, okay, I just want the same, right? But you have also the option to clone the recipe, let's say, and create your own version of this integrated data set and then add your own, let's say, logic to it and then publish it to the data marketplace. Then you have two different variations, but that's healthy and that's fine because maybe a third consumer will come in, then they will see, okay, for this customer 360, I have the version of Mahmoud and the version of Scott. And then the difference between them is Mahmoud looks at it from a finance perspective and let's say Scott looks at it from a, let's say, risk perspective. Then the third one can decide, okay, if they want to reuse one of them and opting in for that reusing of one of them is much cheaper as well because the data integration is already known the recipe is known and based on your implementation, whether it's a physical uh, persistence of this data or let's say virtualization, whatever the technique that the company then will apply, then it's just, you know, uh, add another, let's say, consumer for this. And even, let's say, the other choice of copying or let's say cloning this recipe and try to integrate, let's say, or add your own logic to it. There are also ways to make it more optimized. And then... The company, when the company matures and that amount of integration grows, I think hardly you will, let's say, if you're a data scientist or an analyst, you will go and go and skim through, let's say, all the integrated data sets. And then you will find that maybe 70% of what I'm looking for has been done already. Then I only need to focus on the remaining 30%. And then I can take that integrated data set, push it to my domain. That's fine. And then try to, you know, innovate there, do whatever uh, analysis or analytics, advanced analytics, machine learning, whatever you want to do there. And that can really save a lot of time. And that's, I think, how we envision that integration, let's say, to be in that layer as well. So hopefully that will work. We, we started, let's say, doing that already. So the concept is implemented, but now implementation-wise, virtualization versus uh, physicalization of the data, how the recipe will work. That is something maybe that we can chat about in a year time to see how it evolves, but this is at least the line of thinking that we are heading towards. And and one question that I've gotten, um, Chad Sanderson at Convoy especially was kind of pressing me on this was, um, would those kind of integration recipe type things, are those considered a data product or not? And who manages that, right? It, it becomes a, another question because yeah. it's like, if somebody, somebody should be managing their own consumption, from these different data products. But if those things are still changing upstream, that integration capability, that that standardized format, that inter interoperable format, they have to keep meeting what they've been meeting. Otherwise, you know, it's the same issue that we've been having with the data lake where everything upstream keeps changing. And so I have to keep adapting um, what I'm doing. So it, it's, it's a an interesting question that I, I haven't heard. I think you're, you're even saying we'll figure it out in a year. Cause we're going to test oh. like, how does this, so this what, what we've work? done here. So, so I think my reply to you is um, let's say it's about data sharing, let's say uh, between, let's say the different products. And for that, let's say we've also invented, let's say a product that we call data sharing agreement application that one will tackle this problem because you cannot just opt in for a certain integration without getting the consent, consent or the approval of the original data owners and data stewards of the particular data sets that you're going to use. So let's say 
in that Amazon example, so I'm going to use that phone and I want to put the screen protector and I want to put a cover to it. So we will get, let's say, the approval of the three, let's say, producers that we at Amazon or at, let's say, Data Marketplace will do that integration and then we'll club the screen on top of the phone and put a case for it. And then we are going to sell that towards the consumer. Do you agree with that? And do you think this is correct or not? And that will be part of the approval side. So it's not like, okay, a wish or something. It has to be discussed. It has to approve. And then that means that those three will set together, decide together with the consumer of the integration or the builder of the, the one who requested the integration, and then have a conversation. And once it is agreed, then everyone knows, right? So I'm going, my data, my product will be used in that way by this integration recipe, and then it will be used for this purpose. Now, if someone opt-ins and wants to change it, he or she has to go through, again, the approval part because it may have been, you know, you're looking at it from a different perspective. Maybe I can correct you. Okay, take care. This case that you're trying to fit is not for this version of my product. Then do it differently. So this will be tackled by kind of this process. And everything, in my opinion, if you have the level, the really high transparency level in, let's say, whatever product that will manage this, so in our case, data marketplace, we don't hide anything. So in one shot, you can go get to know about this integration. It is being done by these three or four data sets that they have these kind of ownership and stewardship. And this is the recipe of an integration. And these are the steps, right? And then if anyone tries to play and change something, it, has to, it means something downstream, right? So that kind of impact needs to be assessed. And that's also something that we're really actively looking towards. And But yeah, we haven't implemented that whole ecosystem, but at least hopefully this will tackle the question that you mentioned. And of course, avoid, let's say, the bad scenario. Let's say if you go back to, let's say, changing upstream without, let's say, everyone knows what's happening. So I hope that that will solve this problem as well. Yeah, and... and I think it's interesting right now talking to a lot of people, they're saying that the way that we share information, you know, because the way that we share data as in the ones and zeros, it's API is fine, right? In most cases, the way that we share information and analytical queries, like analytical APIs are far different. Like we need them to be able to do, um, big, complex, range-bound queries of like, okay, I want everything that matches, you know, with a bunch of different filters and, and things like that, and and that we're pulling a lot of data instead of like small amounts of data. And yes, we can do that somewhat with SQL and things like that. But, you know, it, it, it's it's a complex topic the more that you start to dig into like what, what should an analytical API look like. But that should be the interface. And so we can still have upstream changes within the application in the in the operational system as long as it doesn't break that interface that analytical api that's being shared that we still have that that change and that we can quickly evolve our um, our operational side but that we don't constantly have this one to one tying between our operational and our analytical because the, those those just are constantly evolving and breaking and, and that's what's been the, the big issue. But, but that's that's one of the hard pillars of data as a product, right? So you don't also offer one product. You can Your product can have versions, right? The phone can have get smarter, slimmer, brighter, the camera can enhance, but then you can ensure also backward compatibility and that's something that 
also in the product thinking, when you implement that, must be one of the main pillars that, let's say, when you provide, when things get evolved and you provide, let's say, a next interface, being it an API, another batch or a stream or whatever, the data, your data, your product will be consumed. You have to ensure also the backward compatibility. And for whatever reason you want to decommission a certain interface, then through that transparency layer, again, you get to know via the lineage capability who is going upstream is going to be affected. And then, of course, it is your own responsibility as a domain to communicate that and figure out a way with all your consumers to, you know, roll out or get rid of this interface and then let them switch to the newer model or to the new version of it. So that also, I think, will, will, will be a great addition if we manage to create that mindset and also if the tools can allow for such a thing, that will be really new, really nice to, to have as well. Yeah, the, the something I've been kind of pushing for is, is an auto increment from version to version. If, if you can test how somebody is using your data product, you can say, will this version change actually impact them? And if not, then they're auto, uh, you know, they're automatically moved to the next version because there's no reason yeah. for them to not start using the new version. Right. So like we want that as well, but it's, it's, we're, we're, that's running. That's not, we're still yeah. at crawling stages in, in a lot of indeed. cases. Indeed. indeed. So it, it's just a journey, right? So we have to embrace that this is a journey and there's no yet. So it's so the direction is clear, huh? but then, you know, how to go there. Yeah. Over the upcoming, let's say four or five years, I think there will be some struggles and I really believe in what you're doing now because sharing these experiences and failures and pains and also successes is the key, let's say to, not just evolve ourselves, but also let the, the technologies also evolve in that direction. Otherwise, then you want to go right, but then, you know, the car doesn't take you right. Then you will be like, you know, going nowhere or, you know, going to a reverse direction. So that's really key, I think, here when it comes to data mesh, because let's put it fair and clear. It's, it's new, right? architecture and then data warehouses has been let's say there from the 70s right and now if you go to you know any company and even they have the already made model for you based on your industry that you can just put in the data in and then you will get a lot of integration already happening that kind of maturity right because it has been there for 50 years 70 years but yeah data mesh is really really fairly new so let's also don't try to let's say push too much because yeah, it will take some time. That that aspect that it's a journey is is crucial, and and that there are pains and there are things that data mesh hasn't fully solved for. And there's there it's not that okay, you move to this and everything is all of a sudden golden. It's not that data becomes easy. It's that you were were making these changes so that we can have that scalability and agility and and stuff. Um, you, you mentioned the that you know there were some. Uh, failures along the way. I, if you're comfortable sharing, I would love to to hear kind of a couple of places where you tried something and it didn't work. And then we can talk a little bit about why that didn't work. Because like the point of this podcast isn't to sell data mesh. It's to talk about how people are actually attempting to do it, what's working well and what's not so that we can avoid, you know, we can create our list of anti-patterns. We kind of have certain anti-patterns of like, you know, um, don't force everybody to use, you know, we want polyglot, don't force everybody to use, you know, just SQL or anything like that. And don't, don't, 
just give everybody the full thing where they have to do all of their own governance and that you have no standards and no interoperability and all that, right? Those are kind of somewhat relatively obvious first level anti-patterns, but would love to hear some stories of some things that you were trying that didn't necessarily work and how you've evolved those into a place that's working much better. Yeah, I think we already covered the solution of the challenges that we have faced already in the talk, but to be more precise, uh, over the last, let's say, two years or, or even three years, we've added most of our capacity and, and effort into that layer, the central layer that we call the dial architecture, uh, into getting data in, right? So let's say rolling out, let's say, the pro- a very you know enriched programs about data ownership, data stewardship, created, let's say, function in the organization in order to realize, you know, what this means to you, et cetera, et cetera. And that went very well. And now everyone knows about that. And then they started to onboard their data to dial and then, you know, uh, get to know the benefits of doing that. But what we kind of underestimated during this period is that we always said, okay, let's leave the consumption for now and we'll figure it out later. But after, after let's say, those scaling up a lot in the sourcing side of getting the data. And if you now look into the ratio of the of the consumption, it's not actually as what we have hoped, but that makes sense, makes sense to me because we didn't invest much there. And that's why I really advise, so don't try to tackle it from one angle only. So try to, let's say, okay, work on the onboarding of your data and whatever solution that you will use, but also think of the consumption and how it will how it will it will hunt you even if you don't let's say think of it in the same in the same time. That's why, for example, we came with the it, we, it was obvious from the beginning that we need to have an integration kind of thing. But then, okay, how we are going to do it and what kind of a style virtualization versus let's say physicalizing the data? All these stuff just came recently, and we feel like we've maybe if we could have done that earlier, then we could already have been let's say you know already producing or let's say consuming data in a much faster rate. And also automation is a key here because we facilitate a lot of consumption, but then it's done manually. So a team is trying to help everyone, let's say in the, in the consumer domains to, let's say, realize their, their how the data uh, should be integrated, etc. But if I have another, let's say, time, if I go back in time, I think we would have then looked into how to automate that from the beginning which we are going to start anyway uh, nowadays, but the advice was, okay, or maybe my advice is, okay, don't underestimate the consumption side when it comes to data mesh and also the challenges when it comes to duplication of the data and how you're going to manage that and how, let's say, um, hard would it be to know from a lineage point of view and from a metadata management, where is what and what's happening to your data. And if you are really in a highly regulated business like ours, that can lead to big, big fines if you don't know what's happening. And then try to, let's say, avoid the chaos, let's say, of fully decentralization. Uh, and then because it comes with its own also cost in that sense. So I hope that's that's clear. Yeah, and I think especially on that last point of you don't jump from centralized to decentralized. It's not no. like I, I talk about. Um, you know, with microservices, there's thin slicing where you take off a microservice at a time. You don't go in and smash your your monolith with a hammer 
and it just you know goes into a bunch of shards and it works right like you you need to think about like what are you actually trying to accomplish and and i think that um there's been a lot of talk it's it's very interesting because i'm seeing a few different um kind of patterns emerge around what is the kind of genesis for a data product what 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 is the factor that causes a data product to get created? Is it that the domain thinks that they have information that they want to share? Is it that there's a specific use case that emerges? There's some people that are focusing on sharing more of their data, but not actually as a product initially. And then, you know, that they kind of have low quality data, but everybody understands that it's low quality data. And then people can understand what data is available and on offer, and that they then say, okay, this is the data product that we want to emerge. But then it's kind of weird because it ends up not being like to a a specific domain. It'll be like, oh, we want this information from these like four different domains. And so then they kind of create these micro data products to almost just serve that specific use case. And so it's, it's very interesting, but I think what you're talking about is something that's when I talk to people in financial services, especially, is that a huge part of this is the regulatory, it is the governance, it is compliance. Like, do you need to have every piece of data integrating with each other up front? No, but you do need to create ways to allow for that. And, and we don't have standards. Nobody really has published. There's a couple in like uh, bio life sciences and things like that, but we need more standards around like how people are actually doing this integration. So it's not that every company has to reinvent the wheel themselves because right now it's, it's, it's like, okay, do you, do you just kind of do the old like linking key of, okay, we're going to do all of our timestamps in this way in uh, whatever. And we're going to have a couple of universal IDs if we can get them. But, you know, even in banking, it, it could be that one, company has like seven different subsidiaries so like how do you do that all sorts of fun stuff so even even if you want to do it in yeah if you are in a multinational uh, let's say business and then each country has its own regulations as well right so don't underestimate that and that also we uh yeah we have to deal with that also in a way so indeed i think in the consumption side we really need to find let's say or team up in a way to to figure out how can we do let's say, if possible, standard integrations and, and so on and so forth. What I've seen uh, is going on nowadays is um, there are, there has been some discussions also and some actions even to have standardized or standards for lineage sharing, for sharing the metadata. And that will be can be very powerful in that example because, you know, first of all, you need to know where is what, right? And even if you build those kind of integrations, maybe in a low quality data, if you don't know if that, that integration exists, then you cannot also spot this and even challenge the consumptions and also ask them for a better version all the way to the producers. And for that, there is a standard, I think, about data lineage that's being built by, I think, Open Metadata. That's the initiative. And then they really strive to create a standard of, you know, of, of, of sharing lineage information towards a central capability in your organization because transparency is the key here. So if you... If you know what what is happening where, that will help a lot. But nowadays, you know, each integration can happen in I don't know in a specific domain, but you will never know about it as a 
let's say, center capability, and that will complicate things uh, moving forward. So I really hope to team up in that area also with many people to, to figure out how can we solve this. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of tools emerge around like data quality and things, but there's like a trapped, there's a trapped metadata problem, right? Where there, like I say, multiple panes of glass is a major pain in the ass because if you have to go and figure out, like, I want to understand this information and, you know, you've got your marketplace, right? You say your marketplace has all of the information. If I have to go into all these different things or if I have to create, you know, uh, completely, if I have to do these complicated translations just to create a simple standard set of, of how we do our metadata, that's so, it's a, such a big pain point. And I'm just not seeing, you know, open metadata is trying to, to kind of tackle that, but, um, and open lineage is also one that's very yeah. specific to lineage, but it's, it's kind of, narrow-minded around just being lineage instead of like yeah. lineage is part of metadata and metadata is kind of the, the crucial aspect. But um, yeah, I think there's there's just a lot of, uh, of these challenges. There's a new uh, concept that we're working on actually already for a year now that we call, uh, but then don't uh, hit me, <laughs> we call it the metadata lake. So um, we figured out that, you know, to harvest all the metadata across the organization, First of all, there is no single tool in the market that can cope with, let's say, large, large data types and large technologies, et cetera, et cetera. So we have decided to build, let's say, a tool agnostic lake just for metadata, uh, because it's so crucial in this. So if you, if you, you know, if you have all the metadata in your organization, hopefully in one place, and then there are tons of opportunities that you can do apart from, let's say, reporting on it or sharing it with everyone for backward compatibility, for uh, knowing what's happening for regulators, for whatever. There's many, many use cases for that. But then we found that we need to have a dedicated focus for metadata. And then, but maybe for another episode, we can talk about, you know, the challenges with the metadata harvesting and how can you build a tool agnostic, let's say, uh, solution. So in our case, we have like, three or four different technologies. They are trying to extract the information or the metadata from all kinds of systems that we have in the bank and then put them in that central place, in that case central indeed, because we, we don't want to do mesh for a meta, for a metadata anyway. And then we, uh, we store that data locally and then we build on top of it the really, really beautiful use cases. And then it's really useful for lineage, of course, but then for other aspects as well, for operational optimization, for cost optimization, for uh, connecting the dots between the data, the processes, the technologies, and the people as well. Uh, but I think that's that's a topic by its own, and we can maybe chat about it later. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's another couple of episodes that uh, yeah. we could just dig into any of these uh, specific issues. But um, so I, I think we've covered a lot of really interesting topics and and things. Is there anything we didn't cover a, that you wanted to cover, or is there any way that you'd like to kind of wrap up the episode as? No, I think uh, we, we covered a lot, but of course, the data sharing and the data and the consumption of the data, that's something that uh, I really uh, call for help also for all your uh, audience. Uh, if, if you really have some cool ideas that you want to share or even co-create something together, I'm very open to see how you've, you've done it. And maybe we can team up and try, as you said, also figure out the standard on consumption. I don't know, but, but really this part will, will be 
a little bit complex if you leave it at the end. So uh, let's try to, 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 to realize that now and, and, and figure out a way to solve it as well. So I think yeah. that, that's... I tried to launch a, a thing around uh, that I called Data Moss, which is Data Mesh OSS, just because it's a terrible, uh, like, but it's memorable and it's like something that you can actually uh, search for relatively easily. Um, and and I think that's going to be something that emerges in a couple of years. I think I, I was way too early with it, but I think exactly what you're talking about. We need standardization around just like how do we store events, right? Like how do we store events? And so that there's just a way that, and if people, you know, you make them extensible and things like that, but that people don't have to reinvent, every company doesn't have to reinvent everything each time. And that we can start to say, Hey, we tried this and it didn't work. Like let's, let's evolve yeah. away from this and things like that. Yeah. So, um, so you kind of gave a, a, a good uh, summation of, of what you want people reaching out to you about, but uh, is there anything else that you want people reaching out to you about and, and where's the best place as well? Yeah, I think the best place is uh, we can definitely uh, connect to each other so, yeah, through LinkedIn, but also I think I will stick around also you and I think you also do meetups uh, as well to uh, gather people around and the tables, etc. So I would be also very keen to join and then listen and find out uh, or team up with people uh, from from uh, from these kind of events. And otherwise, I'm really open to and reachable as well. I can share the details uh, of my uh, my own with you, and then um, yeah, really welcoming any any feedback and also co-creation if if that's possible with you as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm uh, hoping to launch in a lot of different countries. The physical meetups and like local and that it's not managed by me, that it is managed by the community so that we can do. I can host the first one in the Netherlands for sure. <laughs> well, we actually. Research that for me. We, oh, you we, already have. <laughs> we had one uh, a, a week or so ago with, uh, that was with um, Pete Hine and. Ah, um, nice. Um, and there was, I can't remember, oh, uh, Paolo Plotter from Agile Lab and um, Ferd Shepherds from um ing so uh oh, nice. i was supposed to actually reach out to to invite you so i've got to give him a little bit of grief but um so uh mahmoud this has been really great really enjoyed the conversation i think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of folks so i really want to thank you for taking the time today and i'd like to thank everyone as well for listening thank you speak to me there i'd again like to thank my guest today mahmoud yasin who's the lead data architect at abn amro you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around 
your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Thank you.